Welcome to Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer. I've worked in the animal health industry, and prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. In each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a veterinarian or technician as they share their own directions, what's worked, what hasn't, and how they've made it all fit, and how they've lived to tell about it. Remember Deb's story from season one when the mayor drop kicked her across a stall? Oh yeah, I'm looking at my guest's reaction right now. It, it, it's okay though, she, she speaks in complete sentences, she's fine, it, it's good. Thank you for joining me as we explore veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support the profession we love. Today, we get to chat with Dr. Deborah Landis, a veterinarian and owner of Landis Veterinary Services, providing veterinary care to small ruminants and offering small animal relief services. She also serves on two boards, the Pennsylvania Veterinary Foundation and the Columbia Animal Shelter in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show. Hi. Well, you know, we have lots to talk about, Deb. And I think before we talk about your current place on your career path, I think we should talk about what it was like when you first started out, because you graduated from University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine and you worked in mixed animal practice. What was that experience like? Yeah, my first two years out of school, I did mixed animal practice, which was about 80% bovine. So I did dairy cows for about the first two years out of school, mixed with some small animal. And it was great. It was a very rural community. Um, It was hard. Um, We were on call every other night and every other weekend. It was a lot of hard work. During that time, my father also got sick, and he had had a long-term illness for a long time. So after being two years further away from home, I moved back to the community that I grew up with. Um, And then I worked at another mixed animal practice for about nine years before going on my own. Got it. And at least when I was in vet school, there weren't many women going into large animal medicine, and I imagine it was the same for you. How did the clients treat you, especially the male farmers, for example? So where I worked the first year out of school, two years out of school, the veterinarian I was replacing was a woman, and she was very well respected. So she had opened a lot of doors for me that did not need opened. Um, But you still, it was a conservative community. And you just still did hit some farmers who didn't want to, um, you know, be alone with you in the barn, <laughs> which was, is kind of comical when you think about it. I did have a farmer one time. He wanted to start um, telling me what the Bible says about single young women. And as he started talking, I could feel my face getting red. And I never did get to hear what the Bible says about single young women. And to this day, I still wonder what the Bible <laughs> says about single young women. But generally speaking, um, the reception I received was pretty good because of a, a strong female veterinarian that had been there before me. Now, if that veterinarian hadn't been there before you, can you tell us how you think it would be? Well, yeah, there was one practice I had interviewed, and they told me that I would be the first female vet in that county. It was 
actually the male veterinarians that had me more worried than the clients. I knew that I could do the work and I could prove myself to the clients, but I felt like they were only going to send me to the places that they thought were okay. And I didn't take that job because I just, I didn't feel real comfortable with for what their perception was. Um, and I think every practice is different. The first job I worked at, the male veterinarian was a smaller man and sometimes he got backlash because he was shorter. So, you know, nobody's going to be perfect. You work hard, you do the job, and you just earn the respect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you heard when I introduced this episode about another guest from season one who had many, many adventures, including she got kicked really hard by a mare. I mean, she sailed across the stall. She was airborne. But, you know, she learned a good lesson. And I was wondering if you had any words of wisdom you'd like to share or any stories from the trenches. Well, I did get hit in the back of the head with a calf jack one time. (laughs) And and a cow was out in the middle of the field. And I drove, we drove minivans because um, my boss felt that you could put more stuff in and you can. It has a better economy of space. And he was littler and I was littler. So those big um, trucks with the bill units just didn't work for us. And I drove my van out into the middle of the field and I parked too close to the cow <laughs> because <laughs> we put the calf jack on to help pull the calf out. And when the cow went down, it swung over and it trapped me between the car and I couldn't get out of the way. Oh. But the injury really wasn't that bad. I, I had a laceration, I had to go to the hospital and stuff, but... um. It wasn't too bad, but it it, it definitely teaches you um, a lot of MacGyver skills and a lot of common sense. And you definitely have to trust yourself. If things don't look right, they're probably not. You have to kind of stand up for that because, you know, if, if it's me getting hurt, that's one thing. But you, there's a lot of times there's other people on the farm and sometimes there's other ideas of ways of doing things that don't make sense. Right. And you have to trust yourself. Yeah. And and incidentally, it was such a small town that when my sutures were ready to come out, I happened to be at the coffee shop when the doc walked in and he like checked my sutures in the coffee shop. <laughs> it was like everywhere you went in town. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's really key in terms of when you're talking about trusting yourself. And I want to just switch gears for a minute to your personal life. You're married. How did you meet your husband? So I met my husband at a Halloween party. He's an architect. Okay. So nothing to do with the veterinary field No, nothing to do with the veterinary. Not that I'd be opposed to marrying a veterinarian, but I think there's a whole other side of me that's not veterinary medicine. And he sort of speaks to that. There's a artistic side to me, a creative side that sometimes I get a little frustrated that veterinary medicine doesn't have an avenue for that as much for what I do anyhow. So anyhow, so yeah, he's an architect. And we met when I was about 30. Um, when I was living and working in the Harrisburg area. Uh-huh. And so you have twin girls, um, mm-hmm. and you had them later in life, um, in your late 30s. So help us understand the timeline in terms of having kids with a career, you know, owning the practice. What does that look like? So when I got pregnant, I was still working at a hospital. Now I was doing some side work on the side, but I was still primarily working at the ho- that hospital. And I was 34, 35. We got married and literally we got pregnant on the wedding night. So it was very easy. And we were pregnant with twins. It was like, how fertile can you be, right? (laughs) 
I was working and, and the girls, um, they were a little bit early. They were 32 weeks, which is a little bit early for twins, but not terrible. They were healthy. So they were just a feed and grow baby as they call them in the NICU. Although they were in the NICU for 33 days, which that's a whole nother episode, but that's extremely challenging, um, for moms and, and my babies were generally healthy. So, um, for moms whose babies are sick, I just can't even imagine. Anyhow, so when the girls were about two, then I started kind of fully on my own. And it is a challenge. I After they were born, I did not go back to work full time. So at the practice I was primarily working at, I did um, two days a week. And then again, I was doing just a little bit of stuff on the side. They were not happy about it, the place of employment. At times, I didn't feel they were very supportive at all. I don't know how much you want to get into this, <laughs> but I didn't feel a lot of support. And I... I guess I just didn't care. I had two babies. I wanted to be home and I wanted to be a very active part in their life. And I was willing to sacrifice veterinary medicine for that. Mm -hmm. So um, I worked at that practice for another two years and then I was let go at that point. And then that's when you started your own practice? Right. So I sort of had the, I I was sort of um, kind of moonlighting on the side, doing some small rooming and clients, but not a whole lot. And so then when I was let go from there, it just made sense to kind of expand that. Um, I was picking up more clients, and then I still help pay the bill doing small animal relief services. You bring up a really interesting point about support from the practice, and you mentioned earlier that you didn't take a job from a practice be- because of the male veterinarians and what they kind of what they were saying and how they felt about you being female. How important is culture in terms of joining a practice? Like what if they have like great ultrasound machine or they have all this wonderful diagnostic equipment, but maybe their culture isn't very good. Would you say still you go with a place that has the best culture? Oh, absolutely. The people are key. And I've thought about this a lot actually with doing relief at a variety of different hospitals. Like what is the magic sort of formula? And I don't know, I I guess one of the things I found is the one hospital I do relief at now that I absolutely love, well, the bosses. She's wonderful and supportive of her staff tremendously and, and rewards them in a variety of ways. But the staff is very small. I mean, there's literally maybe two or three, maybe four people there at any time. And it just doesn't allow for a lot of the nonsense um, because you're working so closely. You have to so much depend on each other that to me, like, it is the most important thing about that practice. And I just love um, the women that I work with. Nice. Um, it's so supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, you know, what the magic formula is, but I do think sometimes just not having so many people and so much nonsense and um, some of these bigger practices, there just gets to be so many things that uh, for me, anyhow, a really good fit is this very small um, practice where you know each other. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend or would you advise to new graduates to start in a small practice? Well, I mean, that's a very complicated question because I think there's a lot of factors um, that the new graduates are thinking about Um, because small practices have other disadvantages, don't they? Sometimes they don't have the best days off. Sometimes they don't have the best support. If the boss is gone, you're totally on your own. Um, Sometimes they don't have the best uh, packages, for um, some of those other things. So it, it's complicated. Um, but I personally really uh, like the small practice atmosphere. You said something very interesting, and I want to circle back to having kids. 
it almost sounds like uh, going back to what you were saying about when you were having children, it's like if you want kids, you almost have to start thinking about it early, like maybe even when you're a student. It's almost like you got a plan or maybe you don't have to plan. I don't know. Explain it. No, you absolutely. And, you know, being in the medical field, we talk about things very frankly and openly all the time. But one of the things we don't talk about is our own reproduction. Um, And, you know, as a woman, you feel like if you start talking about it, then you're never going to get married, you know, and you can't put pressure on it. But if we think of it, we're all very high achievers. We've planned for everything in our life. This is something we need to start thinking about. And really, if we're thinking about reproduction, we're the most fertile in our 20s. So nowadays, there's more options for women to freeze eggs and things like that. So if you're really going to do that, 35 is too old to freeze mm-hmm. your eggs. You know, you need to think about that in your 20s. And you also need to be thinking, we see all these images on TV And I was a little bit naive. You know, my sister had a baby at 40 very easily. Mm -hmm. Um, Halle Berry, we see her having a baby at 40. Oh, Savannah Guthrie on NBC. She's had two children in her 40s. Sometimes the conversation's not real open about how it happens. And you get this idea that, oh, it was easy for them. I'll be able to do it. And actually, a, a lot of different things can happen along the way that it's not very easy. I was very lucky. I got pregnant very easily and had the twins. but. And, and maybe I should have started immediately after having the twins, but we waited about a year and a half um, and started trying actively again, and um, we couldn't have any more children. I went through menopause at 39, and actually mm-hmm. we were trying to have children, and I kept missing my period, or it kept being late, and I you have all these little hopes that, oh, maybe this month I'm pregnant, or, and then you wouldn't be in the next month. And I probably delayed a little bit going to see the fertility doctor, um, but by the time I went, you know, my chances were less than 5%, and our um, only opportunity would be to get a donor egg, which which I thought about. But, you know, these are things to be thinking about before you're 39. So I think it's an, it's an open conversation we need to have. I, I saw an interview with Michelle Obama saying that we do a great disservice to professional young women to not have this conversation sooner, just that they need to be knowledgeable with where they stand. You know, I didn't realize she had both of her girls through IVF mm-hmm. and had a little bit of trouble. Um, so I think it's a conversation that we do need to have younger. I, it might even be something we need to have a conversation with the women in veterinary school to start talking about just to start to open the conversation, just to get them start thinking about it. And you don't want to put all this pressure on. I mean, it's hard enough to find an educated man to marry. I mean, that's <laughs> hard enough, but it is something we need to talk about. So would you say in terms of advice that you would give to veterinary professionals who want that family but want a career to start the conversation early? Or at least you're saying start thinking about it. I just thought I had all the time in the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I met my husband at 30 and we dated for a few years and then we got engaged and and maybe I would have moved things faster. Um, Maybe when I had the babies at 35 and everyone said, oh, well, you're the mean. You're the mean for what women are having babies right nowadays. You're the average. So I still felt like after I had the twins, I had time. And... And in fact, I didn't have any time. I mean, if someone had said, hey, Ray, you're 35. Like, if you want any more children, like, 
tomorrow, like today, you know, <laughs> right. there was just this perception that I had time and, and 39 is early to go through menopause. Um, but there's lots of women that have lots of different challenges along the way. And fertility and reproduction is just, there's better odds if we're a little bit younger. Yeah. And you, you know, you talked about moving things faster. Do you regret having them later in life? The timing of Lily and Nova, would you have preferred to move it earlier? I don't know, maybe, maybe a year or two. I mean, I'm pretty happy. I've been very lucky. I've got to go to go to school and go to professional school. And I traveled a lot after school. And I, I did a lot of things, which I think really add value. Because when we're watching things on TV and I'll say, oh, I was there. I, they're, they're so fascinated. Like, mom, you were there. Mm-hmm. And um, I love that I was able to do that and have that life experience on my own. You know, I was a doctor on my own for a while before getting married. But yeah, if I could have squeezed in another baby or two um, by moving things up a little bit, yeah, yeah. definitely would have. Yeah. yeah, and and I do think about adoption still. I, um, mm-hmm. There's there are lots of options nowadays which are good. Yeah, there are. So let's talk about why you became a practice owner. You talked about it a little bit earlier, almost out of the circumstances in your life. Right. Let, let's paint that picture a little bit more for me. Yeah. So um, after I stopped working at that mixed animal practice and I had the little side hustle going on, after the experience at that hospital where maybe I didn't feel a lot of support, I just didn't want to feel like I owed people something. That if I was working for myself and I wanted to take off for muffins for mom, or if I wanted to go to the park for the afternoon, that I didn't owe anybody anything, that I only had to answer to myself. And I know that I'm hardworking. I give 100% to my job. I give so much to veterinary medicine that if I wanted to give some of my life to my children, that I could do it how I wanted to do it and have control ultimately. And the small animal relief helps to pay a lot of bills but keeping it relief has always allowed me to the ability to say yes or no to any job mm-hmm. and really put my family and my kids first. Um, thankfully, my husband has a good job. He's been able to carry the benefits, which is very beneficial. Um, and we've talked, we talked a lot at one point um, when he was let go from a job, if it actually made more sense for me to work more and him to work less, but I wanted to be home more and he wanted to work more. So the way it is structured, I can control my schedule. And that's ultimately what I like. What The way I do practice is very unconventional. I, Ooh, tell us. I don't know that it's for everybody at all. And I don't even know that it's the best financial decision. And I didn't really plan for it. I sort of stumbled into it, but for me, it works. It gives me a lot of flexibility to help with Mayfair or drive them to gymnastics or just to control my schedule. You know, I don't have any employees. It's me. I do the bookkeeping. I do stuff um, in, in my office here. I see small ruminants with sheep, goats, llamas, alpacas, some white-tailed deer. I get talked into pot-bellied pigs and a cow here and there. <laughs> um, I'll do people's dogs and cats when I'm at the farm. And then the rest of the time I fill in with small animal relief jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I do think about opening a hospital because I, I do think I have sort of this base that would go very nicely into going into hospital. And, and maybe as the girls get older, um, I will. And I do think the fact that I realized they were going to be the only children I have. Yeah. So I'm going to give it 110%. 
And I didn't want to miss out on anything. Mm -hmm. Again, that, you know, I feel guilty for not working an extra Saturday or whatever, that, that I could control things. And, and really, I still work an awful lot, but I'm able to drive the girls to gymnastics. I go look at the neighbor's goat, and then I go back and pick them up at gymnastics so I can fit in my calls according to my schedule, my husband's schedule, and the, the kids' schedule. Right. I think that's really unique. But I think it's a really good situation to hear about. Because I don't think maybe many veterinarians, early career veterinarians or new grads would even know you could do something like that. And that's terrific for them to hear. Yeah, I don't know that I know anybody that's practicing the way I do, which there might be a reason for that. But again, I, I it's evolved into this. I actually see it evolving as I get older and as things change. Um but for right now, I can sort of manage it. And it's all about what I can manage. I, I don't want to be in that position where um, where I feel like I wasn't before, that I was just sacrificing everything for veterinary medicine. Absolutely. I wanted to talk to you about kind of, as you're talking about your life, your practice owner, you coach some sports I had, oh, yeah. I read, yeah. um, you live on this 25 acre farm and you raise goats. So Deb, there's a lot on your plate and we haven't even gotten to your volunteer commitments. So I know nobody can do everything, but you, you are touching on something very interesting, which is the management, how you manage it all. With that all said, how do you do what you do? With a very busy, cl- <laughs> with a calendar, I, um, yeah, I mean, it is important to me to be able to help coach the kids' teams and be able to make that happen. Um, and again, the way I've structured things, I have I have that control to do that, where I don't know if it's that easy if you're working for someone to structure things that way. There are some bosses, which I do believe are a lot more accommodating than others. And, and maybe if I had stumbled on that, a situation that worked for me, but I hadn't, and that's why this evolved. Um, it is hard. I, I try and do one day off a week because when you're working for yourself, you just tend to schedule, schedule, schedule. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, you know what? I should have a day off too. But I just love it. I, I think there's so many more sides to us as people other than veterinary medicine, like being involved with the sports and um, having, I always dreamt of having a little farm, you know, all those years you take care of other people's pets and all you want is to have some goats and chickens and we have ducks of our own. So that I, I really, I really enjoy. I really enjoy those things. So to me, that's just part of our life. It, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. And, you know, looking at you, you don't look like a frazzled person. You look very <laughs> calm and like kind of um, one with no, I come off that way, but I'm very tightly wound. <laughs> really? Yeah, I laugh about this sometimes because people will tell me that I um, like, oh, you're so laid back, but n- not really. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of planning and organization that circles in this head. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. I, I wanted to talk about some of your volunteer commitments. I learned that you volunteered for the Native American Veterinary Services Project. And I was wondering if you could tell us about the program and how you became involved in it. Yeah. So the Native American Veterinary Service Project, I got involved with it through a veterinarian, Ted Robinson, who started the program and it services some of the Native American reservations out West. And boy, that was a long time ago that I I did one of those trips. And actually, I would look forward to taking my girls on one. Um, And mostly what they service is um, spay and neuter um, dogs in in the Native American communities. Although we did look at a guinea pig one time. um, And I think I got talked into helping neuter a horse, which is my least 
favorite thing in the entire world. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a wonderful program that services the reservations out west. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you serve on the board of the Columbia Animal Shelter. Since 2003, you've served on the board of the Pennsylvania Veterinary Foundation. I'm curious as to why you decided to actively engage yourself in those organizations. Well, I had a really strong mentor in in Karen Martin. Uh, She's a veterinarian. She's retired now. And she was very involved with volunteering outside of your career, and particularly with the Pennsylvania Veterinary Medical Association. I've always felt very strongly about volunteering and being involved. And and she kind of took me along and, and mentored me. And then through Ted, through the Native American Veterinary Service Project, I met Ted on that project. He was one said, you know, we need a young, at that time I was a young veterinarian, we need a young veterinarian on the foundation. And that's how I got pulled into the foundation. Uh, it's so important to, to be involved and you know, boards, I've learned over the years that boards can be frustrating. It's a, a very slow process. You know, when you work for yourself and you want to change something, you just change it. Right. right. <laughs> but when you're on a board, it could take years. Um, but it's it's taught me a lot about how things function in that way, how things get done, how foundations work. Um, and again, it reminds you of why you're doing what you're doing. What advice would you give to veterinarians early in their career in terms of volunteering time? Yeah, you should. And and I, I get a little bit, because um, I think I walked the line. I, I've been a veterinarian for 20 years. I still feel like a young veterinarian, but I'm, I'm not anymore. <laughs> and um, I walked the line between, you know, sometimes the foundation meetings, you know, young veterinarians don't want to be involved. They don't want to volunteer. They don't want to do stuff. And I really, I don't think that's the case. I think it's a matter of them finding the right venue that fits for them and the right contacts or the right mentor like I had and on our way to connect with them. Mm-hmm. But I imagine you can just start somewhere like like the yeah. PVMA. You just start as a member, maybe attend a meeting and just... Yeah, little baby steps and even, um, you know, just send an email to the executive director and say, hey, I'd like to be involved. You know, Deb, I feel like I've learned a lot during this this half hour or so because I feel like really what you're saying is it's important to get perspective. It's important to trust yourself. It's important to manage what you want to manage and how you want to do it. Is there anything else that you'd want to relate to new veterinarians? I don't know that the way that I've done things is is perfect by any means. It seems to work for me right now, and I sort of have to find peace with that. And like you said, trust yourself. You have to know that you're going to make mistakes and you're going to mess up, and you have to give yourself a break a little bit. And yeah, and every once in a while, you need a vacation. You need to step back. You need to get perspective on the profession and and try and remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Because veterinary medicine can be incredibly challenging and hard. (laughs) But fun and rewarding. We've got to end on a good note. I know. I was going to say, we can't end on this down note. But I, I, I love what I do. I mean, I love my girls going farm calls with me. And it's to me, it's so fulfilling. You know, they're helping me neuter a goat or, you know, look at an alpaca and they're, they just, how fascinated they are and how cool, you know, 
that they think their mom is, is really, really warms my heart, heart and reminds me why I do what I do. Nice. Well, oh, thank geez. you so <laughs> No, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Um, we're out of time, but I really appreciate you joining me today. This concludes another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. Please remember to visit VetVance at www.vetvance.com and check out Zoetta's Commitment to Veterinarians on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get more information about life issues such as handling student debt, reducing stress, communication skills, and reputation management. VetVance is also available as a mobile app on both Apple and Android devices. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. We would love to hear from you. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. Until next time, this is Scrub Chat. Scrub Chat.